Well, good morning, church. So glad to be with you this morning. My name is Trevor Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it is an honor to be able to uh, spend time with you this morning opening the scriptures, allowing God to teach us something new today. And so this morning, we are beginning a brand new series, as Emma said, and this series is called Trinity. And so for the next three weeks, we are going to be looking at one of the most uh, important doctrinal convictions that we hold as Christians, one of the most important pieces about what it means to follow God. Uh, For centuries, this old belief has been that there is one God who has been experienced most fully through three different entities. And so the God of the universe throughout the scriptures is expressed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So diversity and unity and multiple and yet single, three and yet one. And though this is pivotal to our faith, my concern would be this morning that, that few of us actually live our life within the church ever really giving the Trinity a second thought. Few of us ever live our lives with the Trinity actually having an impact on how we live and move and breathe and have our being. And I would argue that one of the reasons the Trinity is so difficult for us to live by and it takes the back seat within our life often is because ultimately I think the Trinity is something that's very hard to understand and very hard to apply. And the truth is there are a lot of things in life though that don't make a whole lot of sense. And there's a few of them I ran across this week. I wanna bring them to you and see if you can help me make a little bit of sense of them. And so, uh, for instance, why do we park in driveways and drive in parkways? Why is the man who invests all of your hard-earned money called a broker? Think about this one. Why is 11, the number 11 pronounced, why isn't it pronounced 21? Think about that one for a second. That one's good. Where do forest rangers go to get away from it all? Uh, why, when you miss a call, phone call from someone, you call them right back, they don't answer? Why is a pizza box square and yet a pizza is round? And why do we turn the car radio off when we're trying to park our car? And why do people eat quinoa? <laughs> so the, these are just a few of the baffling things in life. And I believe across this room, there are probably many of us who would add to this list of things that are confusing and hard to understand the existence of God and particularly the idea of the Trinity as well. It's a very hard thing to understand. It's something that is central to our faith, but at the same time, it's something that we have a hard time really wrapping our mind around. The reason for this sermon series is to hopefully help shed a little bit of light on what it means to have this as a part of the mystery of God. Now, I know that many uh, folks in this room, perhaps, and folks that I know within my own life and relationships and friendships have been very frustrated by the inability to wrap our minds around this divine being. But I just want to say before we get into really anything else, just for a moment, that the fact that God in his Trinitarian existence is difficult to comprehend is in the end a good thing. It is a good thing that God is hard to understand. Because if the creator of the universe, the one who has made everything and holds all things together, if he can be contained in my feeble mind, then we have a lot bigger problems on our hands. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, the fact that God is difficult to comprehend, hard to understand, is in the end a very good thing. But what is God like? What is he like? So to be clear, if, if this doctrine has been debated and wrestled with and studied for as long as it has been wrestled with and studied, I don't think we can settle it in the next 35 minutes. Uh, but we're gonna do our best shot to kind of wrestle with this and see what God can teach us new. 
You see, the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament were equally, equally at a loss as how to present this God to those who were reading about him and trying to understand him. They struggled as well. In fact, they were convinced, just like the writer A.W. Tozer wrote, he said, always, everywhere, God is present, and always he seeks to discover and reveal himself to each one. God is everywhere, and he's always working that we might understand him and know him more, but at the same time, God is transcendent, meaning he is so far above, so wholly other, so far different from who we are, that he is transcendent above everything. But at the same time, we also know that God is eminent, meaning that he is close and he even dwells within us. So what we read from Genesis to Revelation is the writers inspired by the Holy Spirit of God doing their best job to describe him to us. Here's what he's like. But when we don't have adequate words to be able to describe something, what we often do is we have to use the familiar to help understand the unfamiliar. So I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, there's been a new restaurant that just came to town, a, a dessert place that a friend of mine and his girlfriend just opened up called Vampire Penguin. Has anybody been yet here in town? Uh, looks like you get something to do at church. So Vampire Penguin. And he was at our house recently in, in describing what they were about to open. And he was like, listen, it's, it's really unique. Uh, there's not a lot of things like it. Uh, if you've ever had a, a, like a, like a, a penguin snowball, it's kind of like that, but also it's kind of not. And if you were to take snow and like flavor snow, it's actually a lot like that, but it's also kind of not like that. And a slushy, if it was like less icy, then it would sort of be like this, but also kind of not like this. Um, and it's actually really fancy, but also it's actually not fancy at all. It's really, really simple. He's trying to explain this to me. I'm like, I, I, bro, I don't know, but if you said dessert, I trust you. I'll come at least give it a shot. And so sure enough, I took my kids the other day for the family and friends day. We went to Vampire Penguin and we ordered two different, because you gotta try it all. So we had something chocolatey, something fruity, just to get a good flavor profile from all of it. And sure enough, it was weird. I couldn't explain it. It was kind of like a pelican snowball, but also kind of not. And it was kind of like snow if you flavored it, but also kind of not. And it was also like a slushy if it was less icy, but also kind of not like that. It was sort of fancy looking, but it was actually very, very simple. Sure enough, his explanation of what it was using familiar terms helped me at least get a little bit of a grasp of the unfamiliar, but in the end, it failed at really being able to explain it. You had to experience it. I couldn't even describe it to you now. I had to sit down and try it for myself, and then I was like, oh yeah, parts of this help, but parts of it doesn't. You see, what the writers of the Bible are doing are trying to give us handles for what God is like because God is so transcendent, he's so big, he's so other, he's so different. But the writers are saying, here are some handles for you to be able to understand what God is like so that we can say, listen, I don't understand all of God, but, but this right here, this helps. I get this. Yeah, this idea of God being three in one, it's still a little bit murky, but this, this explanation, this illustration, this thing, this actually helps me. I'm still a bit cloudy, but I can grab a hold of this. And each and every one of these illustrative efforts throughout the scriptures all fall short and cannot contain the transcendent God. However, we may find them helpful. And so thus, the dilemma of the writers of the Bible, not one illustration can really do it justice and define the divine deity behind everything who holds all things together. He's too big, too transcendent, too other, too removed, but at the same time, there's something about him that is familiar, relatable, accessible, and close. So often, they use something familiar to explain the unfamiliar. They use association, saying things like, God is like 
this or comparison. God is like this. So they say things in the scripture like God is like light. God is like a rock. He's like a consuming fire. He's like a shepherd. He's even like a mother. And there were, however, three descriptions of God that seemed to become prominent within the early church and seemed to be grasped a hold of by the church and used often as a definitive way of understanding what this God is like. And so they said, God is like a father. And not just that, but God is father. And God is like a son. And not only that, but he pulls on skin and becomes the son and walks among us. God is like a spirit, but not only that, but he's also the indwelling spirit within us. Three parts in one. The oneness and threeness of God. Clear yet? Good. It might be helpful to think about it in this kind of way. For instance, I want you to think about the Trinity in terms of time. Okay, so if you're thinking about time, then you're going to have, for time, you're gonna have past, right? You'll have present, and then you'll have what? Future, very well done. Yes, past, present, future. Now to have time, the concept of time, you must have all three entities of time to have time. In fact, if you take one of the three pieces away, you no longer have time. You just have past and present, or present and future. They work in tandem with one another. They help explain each and every part, and without all of them, you don't have the one thing you're trying to have. Think about it this way. Think of space. If you have any kind of defined space, you are going to have height, width, and depth. Height, width, and depth. These three things as well helps what to define some kind of defined space before you. Again, if you take one piece of that away, you no longer have space. You can't say this is space if you don't have width or height or depth. They're all necessary. They all contribute to the one thing, but they themselves are their own entity also. Does that help a little? Good, let's keep going. The Trinity is a confusing and mysterious piece of who God is. The best the people in the Bible try to do as they write it is they say, listen, here is what he's like. He's sort of like this, but also kind of not. And he's kind of like this, but also kind of not. This is familiar. It may help with the unfamiliar, like time, like space, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now today we refer to this concept of God, this mysterious piece of God as the Holy Trinity, It's the mystery of God's threeness and oneness. However, the word Trinity is never penned within the Bible. You can't look it up. It doesn't exist. This word Trinity actually comes from all of the wrestling with those who have come before us when it comes to the scriptures. Emma spoke about it earlier, but formally it was written down by a Christian theologian named Tertullian. He was the first one to use this idea in relation to describing God as he understood it through the scriptures. And actually became a part of Christian vernacular when it was uh, written down and called together as the church came together in Nicaea in 325 AD to discuss the very things that Emma talked about. They were about to lose it all. Because what was happening is within the church and outside of the church, the the question of Christ's deity was coming into question and and threatened to be uh, pulling everything apart. They said, we got to decide what is Orthodox Christianity? What does it mean to really follow God and love Jesus? Here's what it is. And Jesus, he is divine. We have to protect this. We have to save this. And so what they did is they wrote down in the Nicene Creed the very things that we read together earlier to protect all that was there. 
The church wanted to make sure to preserve this distinct understanding of God because without it, much is lost in translation. Four different times throughout human history, there's been a, a major push to get rid of the Trinity altogether. The third century and the fourth century, and the 19th century and the 20th century. This is why this discussion is so important. It's incredibly important for us to protect the Trinity because it protects all of the pieces and all of the parts, particularly the divinity of Jesus Christ. So why is it important to protect it? Why is it important that we discuss it then and today? In short, here's why. We as humans by nature live by the law of twos. We almost always live by the, the law of twos, opposing sides. Now, maybe more than ever, we have devolved into a contradictory existence. This and that. We, we've decided what side we're on and we've entrenched ourselves. So we live in a world of black and white, Republican, Democrat, male, female, Clemson and Carolina, rich and poor, and so on. It's easy for us to live by the law of twos, to polarize ourselves. We can entrench ourselves over anything. But within the doctrine of the Trinity, what we have instead presented to us is a law of three. It's no longer entrenchment and pulling apart. It moves from being a tug of war now to a divine dance. It's not a tug of war, it's a divine dance. The biblical understanding of human existence and experience is one of relationship. Not of opposition, but instead of relationship between God, self, others, and creation. All working in tandem with one another. And the example for these relationships that we are given is not one of opposition, but instead one of ever-giving, ever-receiving relationship that is seen in the Trinitarian deity of God. That the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit has for eternity past and will for eternity future existed within a divine dance with one another and we in the end are invited to join in as well. So if you can see it, our, our salvation, our experience with God is not limited to a one-time transaction but instead we are invited into catch the rhythm and the cadence of living in step with the Spirit and the Son and the Father. So there are different times from Genesis to Revelation where we see all these distinct aspects present at one time but working independent from one another. I'll give you an example. In the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, you see God create everything by his spoken word. God speaks it into being. But we also read in Genesis 1 and 2 that there was someone else present there who was hovering over the waters and it was the spirit of God. And then in the New Testament, we read about this other person, this Jesus, who is the Word, who is present at the beginning as well. You see all three present at the creation of the world, working in tandem with one another, distinct and yet one. In the New Testament, at Jesus' baptism, we see the same thing take place. As Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, as he comes out of the water, God bursts from the sky and he pronounces approval over his son. He says, this is my son in who I am well pleased. And the Bible says then the Spirit of God comes and lands on him like a dove, in the form of a dove. All three pieces, distinct from one another, working in tandem with one another, the threeness and the oneness of God. We see it multiple places within the Scripture. But the place, for whatever reason, that has really drawn my attention this week is actually coming from 2 Corinthians. As Paul writes 
the, the letter of 2 Corinthians to those living in Corinth, he says in the very last verse of his letter, he says everything that he wants to say throughout those different chapters. At the very end, his last line, he says something very interesting. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What a beautiful thing to say. Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. After Paul writes everything that he wants to say to those living in Corinth, the very last thing he says in communication, the final blessing, the thing he leaves with them is a reminder of the Trinitarian nature of God. May the grace of Jesus the Son and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. It is as if Paul is wanting to emphasize the intimate involvement of God in the lives of those who are reading his letter and who are hearing his letter. You see, without the doctrine of the Trinity, what can possibly happen is we may see God as a critical spectator, as a father who is constantly frustrated, who's angry because of the sin and the mistakes that we have made. He stands off at a distance and just shakes his head. He's a critical spectator. But what Paul wants to remind us is that's not who he is. Instead, he is actually someone who is an ultimate participant, who enters into our world and gives us grace, love, and fellowship. You see, in God, in his fullness, he offers provision, sacrifice, and proximity. Provision, sacrifice, proximity. He continually offers grace as a sacrificial son, love as a father who provides, offers deep connection and comes close in proximity through his indwelling spirit. So the Trinity, clear as mud, right? Three in one, diverse and yet unified. I'm afraid that many of us in the room, until we understand the way God works, we will never place our faith in him. And here's the problem. That is a very tall task. When I came to CIU and moved from Indiana to South Carolina and began school, I was excited to learn all these things about God. And I remember sitting in a theology class, learning all the different pieces and parts and intricate parts of who God is. I remember thinking to myself, this is probably a really good shot, but I think we're probably missing something here. Like, how can we really contain the God of the universe, the one who's created everything and holds everything together? How can he be contained in 325 pages? And how can we exhaust it all in the things that we write and read and the tests that we take? I don't think we can. And so if you're sitting in the room this morning or sitting at home this morning and you're thinking to yourself, as soon as it clicks, then I'm in. Like as soon as I can understand the way God works in these three parts and, and how this whole thing goes down, then I'll have faith in Jesus. Here's the problem, it'll never happen and you'll miss your opportunity. The author and speaker, Max Licato, has written many, many, many books. And in one of his books, he writes this story. And he says, imagine that you wanted to learn how to dance for your spouse, which was an imagination for me. I have two left feet. It's a very difficult thing. That's why Jen and I married each other. We don't like to dance. So we try to avoid it at all costs. But if I wanted to, he says, imagine you want to da dance with your spouse and you need to learn to dance. He said, you might say to yourself, listen, I learned calculus from a book. And 
and I learned English from a book, so certainly I should go get a book on how to dance. So he says, if you go to the store, you buy the book, you bring it home, and you go in the living room and you spend hours all afternoon reading every single line of that book. And when it tells you to sway, you sway. And when it tells you to shuffle, you shuffle. And when it tells you to Charlie Brown, you do whatever that is. Some of y'all get that on the way home. Every single part, you do it perfectly and you work so hard at it and you cut out all these pieces of paper to look like feet and you put them on the floor and you go through all the, the movements and everything the book tells you, you do it perfectly till eventually you call your spouse and you're like, listen, watch this and you do all of it. Book in front of your face, reading every single line, doing it exactly as you had learned from what you've read and at the very end, exhausted, sweaty, you fall to the couch and you're like, I've perfected it. But then your spouse says to you, yes, you've done everything. Your technique was impeccable but you've missed something. You never turned on the music. You've missed the essence of what this is. What happens when we are so concerned with understanding, doing it perfectly by the book, that we actually miss out on the divine dance that we are being invited into? We're so focused on understanding each thing, but in the end, we miss out on what it means altogether. Faith is not about knowing everything. Faith is not about passing the test. Faith is not about staying. It's about staying in step with God, who is in this divine dance from the very beginning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we are invited in as well. This movement of grace, love, and fellowship, provision, sacrifice, proximity, will you join it? this morning, we want to spend the last few minutes that we have moving on to the first person of the Trinity. So I'm sure 20 minutes was plenty for the Trinity itself. Let's take 15 for the Father. The first person in the Trinity to capture the essence of this Father God expressed through the scriptures, we need to look no further than, than the Messiah, Jesus, Jesus himself. When speaking to his disciples, he says to them, here's how you should pray. Maybe you miss this sometimes, but every single Sunday morning in this room, in our traditional space, as we close our prayers, every time we say, let us pray the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what does he say? Our Father. Our Father. Jesus is saying something very important by teaching them to pray in this way. First, he's saying, you need to understand something. I am the Son of God. He and I are one. And not only that, not only is Jesus the Son of God, but you our daughters and sons of God, our Father. He shares it with everyone when Jesus says, pray in this way. What Jesus is doing here is earth-shattering. It's redefining for those who heard him say it the very first time because he's claiming to be God's son. It is revolutionary. Not only that, but you are welcomed into the family of God as well. You are welcomed into the family of God. What Jesus is doing is taking this transcendent deity that for many people had a hard time seeing and inviting him into a familial relationship with his people. Familial in nature, our father. God is our father and we are his children. And the authors of the New Testament grab a hold of this concept and they write about it often. They share it with one another. One letter that's actually written by the apostle John, he says this in 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I love what he says here. And that is what we are. 
the reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. What great love the Father has lavished upon us. I love the exclamation point that he puts on this familial relationship that Jesus invites us into. Jesus' invitation through prayer to say, our Father, and John's invitation for us to see God in this new kind of way as one who loves us. Up until this point in time, the gods of the ancient Near East were only understood in one way, terrifying, angry, vengeful, irritated, disappointed. But Jesus and John say, look again. That's not who this God is. This God is one who lavishes his love upon his children. I wanna be clear here this morning. There may be many in the room today that this has been one of the hardest things for you to really wrap your mind around. The idea of God being a father is difficult. You might even say, wow, listen, if, if God is anything like my father, anything like my dad, I want nothing to do with him. Because my dad, he was terrifying, angry, vengeful, irritated, disappointed. And maybe for you this morning, that's been the roadblock to your faith for years. You see, children are meant to learn theology through their relationship with their parents, to understand God even more. Sometimes it's really helpful and sometimes it's very harmful. And so perhaps this morning, one of the best things we can do is have a reframing of our understanding of God. And just because potentially you have had not a great example of an earthly father, it does not limit the reality of a familial relationship that you are invited into with your heavenly father who is perfect. You can heal from those other things and the love of our heavenly father allows us to do that to see him and to know him. John describes our heavenly father like this. He says, the father loves. The father loves. To understand the first person of the Trinity, the first thing we have to understand is that the father loves. The actual word he uses here is the word agape. It's a very specific word used in the Greek for love, and it means self-sacrificing, self-giving love. If you wanna know what God's like, he is a God who loves with agape love because he has existed in eternity past into eternity future in this ever-giving, ever-receiving relationship in partnership with the Son and the Spirit. That love has now been lavished upon you and you are his children. That love is not given to us based upon our limited ability to obey him or not obey him. We are loved because we are his we are his family. I read an interesting story this week from Ernest Hemingway, written in the 1930s. And the story was called uh, The Capital of the World. And inside of this short story, there was actually another story, kind of a sub-story that never really takes full form. But the story talks about this father in Spain who had a relationship with his son that was estranged. And his son leaves home. He wants to become a bullfighter and he leaves and goes off to do his own thing and the relationship is broken. This father is heartbroken and so he goes after his son. He looks for him every single day and cannot find him. Eventually he decides that surely he's gotta be in Madrid, the capital. He's got to be there and so the father goes and a last ditch effort to find his son, he puts an ad out in a newspaper. He writes this ad and here's what the ad says. It says, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. 
And so on Saturday at noon, as the father walked up to the newspaper office, he came and found 800 Pacos who had showed up, hoping for a relationship to be restored with their fathers, believing that all was forgiven and they were loved. What if, what if many of us in the room this morning One of the reasons it's so hard for us to connect with this God, in particular the Father, is because we, in the end, we have been estranged from him as well. We've neglected obedience. We've found ourselves far from home. The invitation through the Trinity of God is to see that God as Father reminds us that all is forgiven and that you are loved and you are welcomed back into the family. It's been lavished upon you and you are children of God and that is who you are. I want you to hear me this morning. You are loved by God. You are not just tolerated. You are loved. You are his children, his sons and daughters. And the good news of the gospel is that a loving father will continue to pursue you, search for you, offer you forgiveness, to give you grace. It's like Paul writes In the book of Romans, chapter two, verse four, he says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness and his love that is meant to lead us to repentance, to turn our hearts back to him. Our God is a father who is patient with us and he is gracious with us. My dad, growing up, was not a yeller. Like my dad was not like a, an angry guy or anything. And um, there were plenty of things that I gave him reason to yell about. But as I was a kid, I remember watching him. And he just didn't get angry. I mean, the worst he would do would be like disappointed. And that hurt. I mean, it really did to, to see my dad disappointed in me for whatever reason. But watching my dad display the kind of patience that he displayed it was amazing to me. Every time I came home late after curfew, he was patient with me. He was patient with me when I intentionally irritated my sister, patient with me when I shot out the windows of the barn with a BB gun. He was patient with me when I threatened to pack my bags and leave. He was patient with me when I was driving too fast and got a speeding ticket. He was patient with me when I overdrafted my bank account. He was patient with me whenever I did something to harm someone else. You see, it was his patience that caused me to want to make him happy. It was his patience that caused me to want to please him. And it was his patience and his kindness that in the end is the thing that turned my heart towards my father. Not the spanking and the grounding and the taking of way, those certainly helped. But in the end, it was his patience and his gracious love. You see, we have a father who is patient with us that our hearts might turn toward him. But as a loving father, part of what the father does as well, he loves, but the father also disciplines. The Father also disciplines. I would argue that the language of love is discipline. I've served this church for 16 years within family ministry in different forms or fashion. The thing that has shocked me the most within this community is the familial relationships and the lack of discipline that exists. I've seen so many mothers and fathers who are more interested in being friends with their children as opposed to being parents of their children. And we lose Discipline, we lose the ability to really truly express love. Discipline done in the right way is the language of love. The book of Proverbs says it this way. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. 
because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father does the son he delights in. God disciplines us out of love. One of my sons, his name will remain anonymous for his protection. He has developed this new kind of immediate response to any time that we tell him no, or we say, you can't do that, you have to stop. Whenever there's some kind of correction, rebuke, or some kind of uh, uh, thing we say to him that he doesn't like, here's the response every single time. So what, you hate me? Okay, so now you hate me. I'm like, yes, I hate you. That's why you can't eat marshmallows at 6.30 in the morning. That's why, you're right. So what, you hate me now? And every single time he says it, it kind of cuts me a little bit. No, no, wait a minute, you don't understand. I think instantly to the times where I would rock him as a child and he had a fever. The many nasty diapers I have changed over the years. All the times where I've, I've tried to do something just to make him smile. All the ways we tried to express love to him. These boundaries, these expectations that we have laid upon him are not because we hate him, but in fact, it's the exact opposite. It's because we love him. You see, throughout the scriptures, God as father, disciplining those he loves as his children, he does it because he wants to ruin our lives. No. No. The discipline from God the father is done so that we might experience healthy boundaries for our lives and we don't destroy ourselves. The discipline that comes from the Lord is always because he ultimately he wants to keep us safe and not harming ourselves. He disciplines to redirect his children down paths that will lead to sanctification more and more like Jesus Christ. You see, the first part of this Trinitarian dance is expressed as God the Father, and that is what he is. The Father loves and the Father disciplines, and that makes us his children, and that is what we are. And next week, what we're gonna talk about that's so interesting, if God is our father and we are his children, guess what? That makes Jesus our brother. He loves with a sacrificial love and he disciplines that we might experience a fullness of life. But in the end, striving to understand the Trinity, even trying to understand God as father may be an adventure in missing the point. Perhaps Anne Lamont says it best when she says this, I did not need to understand the hypostatic unity of the Trinity. I just needed to turn my life over to whoever came up with redwood trees. Like, what if we've missed it? What if we've been so focused on understanding, God, I have these questions, I wrestle with this until I get it figured out, and not until then will I ever turn my life over to Jesus. I, I can't understand it, I'll never enter into it. We're trying so hard to get all the right steps and do everything just right, but maybe we've missed the music the whole time. This divine dance that we are invited into. What if we just took a moment to just focus on the mystery of this God? The one who, by the breadth of his hand, laid out space. And at the same time, the one who is as close as our next breath. The mystery of that God I don't understand, but I want to know him. I want to be known by him. So this morning, do you join me? Let's, let's pray to him together this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I confess this morning that 
I do not understand the fullness of who you are. I get pieces and parts and I have handles that have been given to me that I can understand, but, but in the end, you are so big, you are so other, you, you are so far above my comprehension. And in some ways, God, that gives me peace. So today, God, I pray that we might open our eyes and our hearts, that we might turn our attention to you out of the abundance of your kindness and your patience toward us, that we might repent and turn back to you to experience your great love. The kind of love that says to us, all has been forgiven. We are loved. And that we might allow ourselves to live under the, the discipline that you have for us, that we might experience the fullness of life and see the boundaries and expectations that you have laid out for this world is because you know it better than any of us. May we trust you. So God, thank you. Thank you for the, the little glimpse into the Trinitarian nature of who you are. Help us to live by the law of three. And to dance in the divine dance that has been going on from the beginning of time as we live in relationship with you. God, we love you. And we need you. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. And everyone said,